what do you prepare for? It's a good diagnostic question to ask ourselves. It helps us see what's important to us. Maybe you've had to use sandbags to make a barrier to prepare for flooding. If you have, you know you don't just put sandbags anywhere, right? You put the sandbags around the things that are important to you, around your house or maybe your barn or your shed. Or instead of preparing for a potential disaster, think about what other sorts of things you prepare for. Maybe you've prepared for a vacation or you prepare for a hobby. For me, it's distance racing. I plan months in advance. I train. The day before the race, I lay out all my gear. I lay out backup changes of clothes. I add up all the calories of my uh, bars and gels. I fill up water bottles. I pack my bag. I load the car. I set two alarms to make sure I don't oversleep. And I tend to wake up before both of them. I prepare because racing is important to me. It's something I care about. For my father-in-law, he couldn't give a fig about racing, but he loves fishing. And so for him, it's spending weeks getting his boat ready for fishing, getting his poles all set up, getting weights set up, uh, repainting everything, because uh, he's passionate about fishing. It's what he prepares for. Of course, one of the most frustrating things is to deal with someone who doesn't prepare like you do. Several years ago, I went on a hike with a friend uh, we'd been friends for a long time, but we had never hiked before. Our planned hike was an 11-mile round trip, and it included a short glacier traverse. And so I was pretty well prepared for this hike. But the morning of the hike, I showed up at his house, and he had apparently forgot to set his alarm. So I had to call him several times to wake him up. And then on our way out Mountain Loop Highway to the trailhead, he pulled into a gas station where he bought a Gatorade and a bag of potato chips for his lunch. He's a fast hiker, but I quickly realized that our idea about what good preparation for hiking looks like is completely different. As it turned out, we turned back well before hitting the glacier, so we didn't have to put our preparation to the test. But in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, Jesus tells a parable that teaches us that one day our preparations will be put to the test. That our entire lives, in fact, are a sort of preparation and that one day that preparation will be tested. If you've been with us regularly since Easter, you know we're working through a long block of Jesus' teaching about the days to come, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and about the final judgment that all people will face. In Matthew 24, 42 to 44, just before this passage, Jesus set out some basic principles. He said you need to stay awake and be ready, for no one knows on what day the Lord will come. And now we find ourselves in the middle of a series of parables that further illustrate why we need to be ready and what it looks like to be ready. So listen to this parable of Jesus in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. 
The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is God's word. Picture the scene with me. Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. A light breeze gives relief from the heat of the day. The ground that they sit on is still warm. As the disciples listen to Jesus, they smell the olive blossoms, the trees around them. Even this last week with the longest day of the year, the sun sets in Jerusalem at 745. As Jesus talks, the sun sets and the night gets darker. According to the Jewish reckoning, they're now on the early hours of Wednesday morning. But the city is full to the brim with pilgrims come for, for Passover. And so joyful noise from surrounding houses and gardens fills the evening air. As Jesus and the disciples look across the steep Kidron Valley to the temple and the city, and they see the city lit up with candles and lights, they watch groups making their way up and down the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as they lean back on the rough olive trees and watch one of these groups traveling by torchlight, Jesus tells a parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 young girls who took torches and went out to meet the groom. Unfortunately, we don't know as much as we'd like about Jewish wedding customs of Jesus' day. We know that betrothal was much more serious than our engagements. It required a divorce to be annulled. On an appointed day, the bridegroom would prepare a feast, which would be the central element of the wedding. In many villages with only 500 or so people, this would be a major event, and missing out on a wedding feast like this would be a big deal. Of course, the timing of this sort of feast can't be precise as the groom is preparing a huge feast for all their family and friends. And what does he prepare? Breads, of course, and olive oil to dip the bread in, and fine wine. These were the staples of the Mediterranean diet. But this is a special occasion, so the groom roasts lamb and goat, seasoned with salt and cumin and cinnamon. Perhaps he has even saved up for some honey and fruit syrup for sweet desserts. After all these preparations for the feast are complete, the bride and groom prepare themselves at their respective family homes. They put on white clothes, perhaps specially embroidered by their family members for the occasion. The bride puts on jewels and a garland of olive leaves is woven through the groom's hair. The feast is prepared. The bride is prepared. 
the groom is prepared. And when all these preparations are complete, the groom sets out for the bride's house to bring her back along with her family for the celebration feast. This procession might wind through the village collecting guests along the way. Or perhaps the bride is even from a neighboring village a mile or two away. And the groom must get her and bring her to his home. This is the backdrop for our parable. Jesus tells us that 10 virgins, young women not yet married, likely in their early teens, decide to go out to meet the bridegroom. We don't really know if they're part of the bride's party waiting for the groom's arrival, or if they wait near the groom's house for him to return with his bride. Is their wait a part of the formal ceremony or a spontaneous decision? It doesn't really matter because in any case, it is precisely what we would expect young teenage girls excited for a wedding feast to do. They go out on a warm evening as a group to wait for the groom. And although they all appear the same when they head out, Jesus tells us that in fact, five are sensible and five are silly. The five sensible girls bring extra oil in case the wait is longer than expected. The silly bring nothing but their torches. And the bridegroom is a long time coming, and they all become drowsy and fall asleep. Here we see the first truth of this parable. The first point Jesus is making is that Jesus might be a long time coming. Jesus might be a long time coming. Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable why the groom is delayed, but he's off to get his bride and her family and bring them back. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to come up with scenarios that might cause a delay. Traveling by foot always runs the risk of unexpected delays and interruptions. Surely neighbors stop him along the way to congratulate him. Undoubtedly, they all have marriage advice to offer. But then he gets to the bride's house. And do you think the bride is ready to go just because he's there and ready to leave? And do you think his future mother-in-law is ready to go? And even when they manage to get the bride and future mother-in-law out the door, they have to make their way back through the village. And if it was slow going before, imagine it now. Everyone will want to meet, greet the bride, tell her how lovely she looks. And this is Jesus' point. No wedding ever starts on time. They never go like we expect. And so Jesus says, why should you expect my return to be any different? It will be a great wedding feast. It's not going to go exactly like we expect either. It may be longer than we think. Jesus might be a long time coming. This parable then balances out the parable that Jesus has just told, which we looked at last week. In 2448, a wicked servant thinks his master will not return anytime soon, so he does whatever he wants in the household. And yet Jesus says in 24, uh, I wrote 40, but that can't be right. Anyways, Jesus says in that parable, the master will come on a day when he does not expect him, when this, when this wicked servant isn't expecting him. And so Jesus' point there is we can't put off spiritual concerns. But here Jesus warns about an opposite error. Many Christians resist long-term planning because they are convinced Jesus will return any day. But we need to be prepared for the long haul. 
Jesus might return today, but we could be here for thousands more years. And so the Christian attitude towards our world, towards our work, towards things that we own is the exact opposite of that implicit in much of our culture. Shopping malls, advertising, Amazon, they all claim that another outfit or another gadget or another tool for our hobby can make us happy. The Christian view cuts against consumerism. The Christian must remember that Christ might return tonight and our material possessions and our work cannot acquit us before that just judge. But our culture's motto is also live for today with no thought for tomorrow. Businesses talk about five or 10 year plans, but how many talk about 50 or 100 year plans? Yet as Christians, we must realize that Jesus might be a long time coming. The Christian cannot merely plan for retirement, but must prepare for the spiritual well-being of generations to come. This dynamic is illustrated by Christian cathedrals, many of which took centuries to build. The builders and architects who began cathedral projects were long dead before they were ever completed. But although our little church here is not as grand as a cathedral, we see the same truth lived out profoundly each week as we labor together to build, as it were, a spiritual cathedral. When you volunteer in the nursery or teach Sunday school or bring food for the fellowship time after service or for Sunday night potlucks, even when you just spend time chatting with a lonely friend here at church or praying with someone in need, you are building up this church. You are laying the foundations for future generations. You are preparing for the kingdom of heaven. To use the language of another of Jesus' uh, parables, you are planting seeds that you will probably never see blossom, or at least some of you will never see blossom. And this truth doesn't just apply to the grand scope of the church, but it actually applies in our individual lives as well. All too often, we simply are not prepared for the long haul. That our marriage may have hiccups from time to time is not entirely unexpected. But are you prepared to be faithful through difficult seasons that may last years on end? We expect the occasional broken bone and six weeks in a cast. But are you prepared to prayerfully endure suffering of prolonged periods of illness? The fact is that for reasons we cannot understand, Jesus lets his people live in long, difficult periods, and we have to be prepared for the long haul. Jesus might be a long time coming. Returning to our parable, the groom's delay shows the difference between the prepared and the ill-prepared, between the sensible and the silly. In the middle of the night, the girls are woken up with cries that the groom is returning. The moment they've been waiting for has finally arrived. They're here. The feast is about to begin. At once, the girls tend to their torches. Now, this word in our Bible, lamp or torch, can refer to either these sort of small clay lamps that we've seen before or to torches. And since they're using these outside as part of a procession, it's most likely that the girls have torches that... Uh, can stand in the wind and send light a long way. 
These first century torches were fairly simple. It was a longish stick with rags wrapped around the top and soaked in olive oil. According to the commentaries, these torches would burn brighter than clay lamps. They were more reliable outdoors, but they would only burn for 15 to 20 minutes. And my imagination is kind of fired to imagine the Bible scholar who went out and timed a torch to see how long it, uh, but apparently 15 to 20 minutes is how long these torches last. Now, in their slumber, these torches have all gone out, and the sensible girls then re-soak their torches in oil and relight them. But the silly girls are in a panic. They try to relight their torches, but they keep going out. We don't have any oil. So these silly girls head off to buy some oil so they can be part of the procession, lighting the way for the groom. The silly girls have only been gone for a few minutes when the groom appears around the corner, leading the way to the feet. The sensible girls feel badly for their friends who are off buying oil, but they will feel worse still if there is no light for the wedding procession. So they take their torches and join the procession, lighting the way. The text says the sensible girls who are ready to go with the groom enter the wedding feast. And the door was shut. And here we see the second truth of this parable. Only the ready enter the feast. Only those who are ready enter the feast. This is a hard truth. But think about it for a moment. Ladies, if one of your bridesmaids called you the morning of your wedding to ask, where am I supposed to buy that dress again? I forgot the name of the store. What would your response be? Or guys, if your best man texts you five minutes before your wedding rehearsal to say that he got tickets to the Mariners so won't be able to make it for the rehearsal, but thinks he'll be back in time for the ceremony, how are you going to text back? We prepare for the things that are important for us. And not preparing for your best friend's wedding is saying, this really isn't that important to me. Now, missing the village wedding is sad for the five silly girls in this parable. But Jesus says in verse 1 that this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. And that's a wonderful image. It's like a feast. But only the ready will enter. This is a recurring theme throughout Matthew 24 and 25, these chapters we have been looking at. Jesus may be a long time coming, but he will surely come. And when he does, there will be a final division between those who are ready and those who are not. Remember the pair of men in the field in 2440? One is swept away and the other remains. And the pair of women working at the mill in 2441, one is swept away and the other remains. And in the parables we're going to look at in the coming weeks, these next two parables, we'll see a final division between faithful and unfaithful servants, between the sheep and the goats. In all these parables, we see only those who are ready will enter the feast. Too late is a terrible phrase. To get to the airport and be delayed at security and get to your gate and hear you're too late is a terrible phrase. 
to have lost your job, to have gotten a pink slip, to hear it's too late to try harder is a terrible phrase. To be served divorce papers and realize it's too late to repair your marriage is a terrible thing to hear. But when Jesus returns, there will be a final and far more terrible too late. We have our lives to prepare, but for those who are not ready when Christ returns, for those who have not prepared, it will be too late. Compared to all of eternity, our life is like the barrel of a rifle. A bullet only travels through the barrel of a rifle for less than a yard, but it sets the trajectory that the bullet will travel for thousands of yards. Once the bullet's left the barrel, it's too late to change direction. Compared to eternity, life is short, but like the barrel of a rifle, your life determines your eternal trajectory. Jesus might be a long time coming, but he will come and only the ready will enter the feast. Don't wait to prepare. One day it will be too late. This is a difficult truth. And you may have noticed I've actually glossed over two of the most difficult details of our parable. Let's come back to those now. The first difficult detail is in verses 8 and 9. When the silly girls realize they can't get their torches to stay lit, they ask to borrow oil from the sensible girls. And yet these sensible girls say no. This seems harsh, even if what they're trying to say is there's not enough oil to split between the ten of them. But Jesus' point in this parable is about being prepared spiritually, not about the golden rule. He's not teaching you to share and play nice with others, which is a true thing you should share. But what he's talking about here is being prepared. And so here we see the third point, the third truth taught in this parable. There are some things you can't borrow. Some things you can't borrow. For example, you can donate blood to people who need blood transfusions. But can you donate your will to live to someone who's dying? You can borrow clothes from a friend, but can you borrow their integrity or their sense of humor? Jesus' parable is not illustrating the golden rule, in which case the sensible girl should have shared some oil. It's a parable about spiritual readiness, about being prepared for the kingdom of heaven. And that is something you cannot borrow. Being ready for Christ's return is an individual matter. It can't be shared or passed on. When the ten girls set out, they appear to all be the same. They all have torches. They're all giggling and excited for the wedding feast. But they're not actually in the same condition. Some of the girls are prepared for the long haul, and the others are not. Some girls realize the groom might be delayed, and so they prepare to be ready at his late arrival. The others are not. And so with the church. Not everyone who attends church is actually ready for the return of Jesus. In technical theological terms, we say not every member of the visible church 
is also a member of the invisible church. That is to say, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is actually spiritually ready. Of course, this only seems to make things more troubling. Only those who are ready can enter. How then can we be ready? To answer this, look at the second difficult detail of this parable in verses 11 and 12. When the silly girls return to the wedding feast, they pound on the door and they call out, Sir, sir, let us in. And the groom answers, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The groom, we think, is not being a very good host. Surely this is too strict. But Jesus doesn't tell this parable to illustrate every aspect of the Christian life. He's narrowly teaching his disciples about what it means to be ready for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And in those terms, although at first glance these verses seem harsh, they're actually the best news in the world. Some things you can't borrow, and spiritual readiness is on that list. And in verse 12, we see why. Those who are ready to enter the feast are those who know Jesus. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. Those who are left out are not excluded because they've offended the groom or simply because they're late. They're excluded because they don't know Jesus. Look again at verse 12. He replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Church membership, church attendance doesn't guarantee that you will enter the feast. Only knowing Jesus. Growing up in a Christian family or acting like a Christian, wearing Christian t-shirts, none of it guarantees that the door will be open for you. Only knowing Jesus. Being a nice person, being a good friend, even being a good person, working for justice or to end poverty, none of it in itself makes you ready for the feast apart from knowing Jesus. We can see then why this is something that can't be borrowed. I can lend you almost anything I own, but I can't lend you my relationship with a friend. I can introduce you to a friend, but you will have to develop your own relationship. And so it is with Jesus. You can't borrow your parents' relationship with Jesus. You have to know him yourself. You can't borrow your spouse's or significant other's relationship with Jesus. You have to meet him yourself. You can't even borrow your church's relationship with Jesus. You yourself must meet him and know him. Some things you can't borrow. You can't borrow spiritual readiness, but knowing Jesus is the simplest thing in the world, and this is why it's good news. You don't have to pass theology exams or attend church for years. When I say knowing Jesus, I mean simply that, having a real personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus means talking to him. We call that prayer. It means trusting him to be a true and reliable friend. This is what Christians call faith. Knowing Jesus ultimately means allowing this relationship to become the defining feature of your life. The silly girls knocking on the door cry out, Lord, sir, sir. But literally they say, Lord, Lord. They recognize that this is someone who you have to know as your Lord. 
Jesus might be a long time coming, but he will surely return. And when he does, only the ready will enter into the great feast that he has prepared. And that's a delightful hope to have set before us, entering into this great feast. But some things you can't borrow, and spiritual readiness is one of them. Yet here's the good news. Spiritual readiness comes down to this, simply knowing Jesus. Are you ready for the feast? Have you met Jesus? If not, please, and you're interested, please talk with me or Pastor Bert or with someone you came with after the service. We want to introduce you to Jesus. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus, our dearest friend. But the relationship has to be yours. Or if you've grown up in the church or attended the church for a long time, ask yourself and ask yourself seriously this morning, do I know Jesus? Do I know him? Do I have my own relationship with him? Is it the basis for my hope? Or am I trying to borrow the faith of my parents or friends or family? Some things you can't borrow, and knowing Jesus is one of them. Let us pray. Jesus, knowing you is the simplest thing in the world. You have come from heaven to earth. You have taken on flesh. You have lived a human life. You have given us your word so we might know you. You have sent your word throughout the world, as we have sung earlier this morning, that we might know you. It's the simplest thing in the world to pray, to talk to you, to get to know you. And yet it's something that we put off. It's something we want to put off till the end. We think there's always time tomorrow. We see that you have delayed in returning, and we think, well, I always have another day to get to know Jesus. And yet this is the most deadly mistake possible. So I ask for those who perhaps have never heard this message before, and for those who have heard this message years and years, perhaps for their whole life, that through your spirit, you would be stirring up our hearts this morning with a desire, with a passion for knowing you, with an eagerness and a hunger for a real relationship with you. Even as we turn in a moment to sing again, we ask that we would find rest in this relationship we have with you, with the true and reliable friend that you are, a friend so true and so reliable that you even laid down your life for our sake. That you died the death we deserved, that we might have fellowship with you, that we might have communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask that your Spirit would be at work in us, enlivening us, making our hearts new, that we might be fitting friends for you. We ask this in your name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.